the co-host of Wisdom Wednesday, Brother Andre Marie, who's standing by at the St. Benedict Center, uh, live here for another Wisdom Wednesday. Uh, Brother Andre, a blessed and happy and joyous and glorious feast of St. King Louis the Ninth to you, brother. And the same back at you, Mr. Church. Oh, I missed church today. Ooh, I graduated. <laughs> well, today is the first day of our school, and I've decided that I'm going to call my students Mr. and Miss and use their last name, at least at times. Oh. So I'm practicing my formal manner of address. <laughs> so you're going to be like one of those headmasters in the old um, uh, the old school movies where they uh, show the old Catholic schools that where everyone's in a uniform and they got to go to Mass every morning and <laughs> have you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, the, a cross between that and Mr. Chips. Mr. Chips. <laughs> so today is your first day of school, really? It is indeed, yes. And I need prayers because I'm teaching Latin this year, which I've never actually taught before. Um, so that'll be fun. So does that does that require you to brush up on it? Uh, 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 do you teach it out of a book? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. We have a we have a we have a book. It's called <clears throat> Missal Latin. Um, by by uh, Father Baumeister, a, a German uh, Mar a German American Marist, um, and um, it's a, it's a real treasure. Um, it's called the New Missal Latin, but yeah, new is in like 1930s. Um, so it's uh, yeah, it's it's a wonderful uh, uh, program, and um, Sister Maria Philomena has taught out of that book for years. So she was sort of. Um, helping to bring me up to speed on on how she quizzes and tests and presents the material and all that stuff. So I had to go back to school this summer with the sisters to learn how to be a teacher. Does that, so mean, we, you're, does that mean you're not teaching religion any longer? Not this year. We, we, we're, Doug Burstow is actually teaching religion in our school this year um, for the high school. I So we, we, we did a, we, you know, we have to, Make sure all of the subjects of our curriculum are covered, and um, it's a real art when you have a school that's this small. Although this year we're we're um, we're almost you know middle sized. <laughs> it's, um, Gee, uh, I but, wonder uh, why. <laughs> well, we've broken the sixty mark. We're at sixty one, potentially sixty two students this year, and the thing is. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, thanks to COVID and thanks to people's stupid reaction to COVID, I should say, um, and uh, and other other factors as well. You know, um, so like we just got a request just I think two days ago. That's why I said potentially sixty-two. Somebody said I'm pulling my child out of public school because of the mask requirement, and so yeah, it, it's it's quite the thing um, because we have to cover a, a lot. Of, we have to make sure that all of the curriculum courses are covered in a small school with fairly few resources. I mean, you know how small everything up here is. It's like, it's like, you know, the Shire. Um, <laughs> we, we, so we have to sort of juggle things, uh, every year and juggle personnel. So this is the first time I've been juggled out of religion, which, which did, um, cost me a lot of angst when I was giving this consideration, but I know, I know the students are in good hands with Doug. So it'll be it'll be good for me to teach Latin because it'll it'll force me to stay um, to stay ahead of the kids. <laughs> well, the, well, and, uh, anytime you uh, you have to tackle anything new, uh, it's always a challenge, even if it's something new that's kind of old uh, challenge. Exactly. And maybe exactly. and, and maybe taking on new challenges keeps us uh, 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 a bit young, maybe. Hmm? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, there is that old thing, guys uh, like me and you, brother. 
<laughs> there is that there is that thing about you know when you take up something new uh you actually literally uh create new neural pathways in your brain um you know i wouldn't have been too excited about that years ago but now now i've actually seen some of the science of it or i've seen it explained to dummies like me and um i'm impressed by it and um it's it's a it's an it's a remarkable thing you know they talk about how study and this this actually does sort of connect to the saint of the day, Mike, and it certainly connects to Wisdom Wednesday. Um, saint Jerome made a statement about the scriptures, about studying scripture. He he, you know, he's famous for making. I guess we'll talk about him around September thirtieth, maybe. If that falls on a Wednesday, we'll definitely talk about him. But he's a patron saint of librarians, among other things. But Saint Jerome says one of his famous utterances is ignorantia Christi, ignorantia, no, ignorantia scriptura, ignorantia Christi est. Ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ, which of course will shock, you know, uh, our, our separated brethren who might think that the Catholics are expected to be ignorant of scripture. But this is what St. Jerome said. And, but another thing he said is this, cultivate um, the, uh, cultivate the science of scripture and you will not commit sins of the flesh. Interesting. Now that's a, par- that's a paraphrase. I'd have to, you know, fact check it to make sure I had every word right. But that's the gist of it. And and what he meant was study is a remedy to sins against chastity. Study helps to facilitate chastity. And that might be that might seem counterintuitive to us, but but it's it's one of those truths that there's a flip side to it. The flip side to it is. Sins against chastity darken the intellect and and eventually lead to spiritual blindness. Uh, th- that's one truth. Now that's I think I think many people can say, yeah, I've actually experienced that. So that it's not the kind of thing that you'd have to have argued too intensely. But it is it is a uh, this is what Saint Thomas Aquinas says in the Summa. This is what uh, Catholic philosophers and theologians have said for for um, well well over a millennium, I'm sure um, that that sins against the sixth and ninth commandment tend to blind us spiritually, especially to higher truths. But the flip side of it, which is actually encouraging, is that if you study, if you spend time in real study, I don't mean, you know, reading a novel. Uh, reading a novel is good. I mean, you know, it's a good novel, but um, that, that's not a bad thing. It's not study, though. Actual study, where you're learning a new language, you're learning a new craft, you're learning a new art, you 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 learn a new science, you, you seriously take up, you know, disciplining your memory, you know, le- learning to re- remember a whole new uh, group of, of, of facts uh, that fit into this science that you're attempting to, to learn. That is discipline, and, it's, and it takes some ardor. It takes some labor. Um, and that discipline itself uh, disciplines the mind so that the mind can be controlled. And as I tell uh, the boys when I speak of um, issues concerning chastity, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sins against holy chastity take place north of the neckline long before they take place south of the belt line. That's just the way it works. Um, in other words, it's the it's the soul, it's the mind that is first impacted that's where impurity starts it does not begin uh in the in the nether regions it begins in the mind that's in any sin right 
So uh, the the body's good. God made it to be good. You know, we're not we're not Manichaeans. We're not Puritans. We're not Albigensians. We don't think flesh is evil. It's good. But um, but but the you know we know we're familiar with the effects of the fall. But it's the it's reason that has to control these things, and the mind is where our reasonable faculties are located. Um, it is where we exercise them, and therefore study disciplines the mind and actually helps us to grow in chastity. That's that's the teaching of the saints. It's not some mystical mumbo jumbo either. It's based upon sound psychology. Well, you, you know, brother, so much of the practice of actually living out the faith is based on sound psychology and sound physiology and works in the real, real world. Two years ago, when uh, you and I first started talking about changing our diets um, uh, and about the medical benefits of fasting, well, lo and behold, doctors all of a sudden started coming out of the woodwork and all. And then afterwards, all men are charlatans. But there were many doctors that went, you know, this intermittent fasting stuff is actually healthy. Yeah. It's actually good for you. <laughs> Taking those yeah. ember days or maybe making every Wednesday a abstinence from uh, flesh meat day. Fridays, observe the abstinence from flesh meat. And, you know, Mitch Chur and I try to take one meal on Fridays and uh, no, you know, nothing in between and nothing afterwards. Um, these things actually f work physically and mentally. Uh, and we shouldn't be surprised by that. That's true. And also gluttony, which is, of course, the, you know, it's the vice. It's a, it's a, it's another vice against temperance. Right. So sins against the sixth and ninth commandment are sins against temperance, specifically against that part of temperance that we call chastity. Um, and and sins uh, of gluttony and drunkenness are sins directly against the cardinal virtue of temperance. But the uh, the so fasting helps us to discipline our appetites so that we can say no. I mean, if you can say no in uh, lawful things, then you then you are more inured, disciplined, you know, equipped, as it were, morally to say no to unlawful things. Right? That's the That's part of the discipline of chastity. You, chast you by by chastity, you know, you you can punish your flesh. You know, you can you can you can do things that are ascetical. And and I'm not telling everybody, you know, nail, you know. It, recline in a bed of nails or, you know, flog yourself onto blood and things or, like that. Or don't become a St. Gerard Magellan and have them hang you upside down over a smoky fire. Yeah, there, <laughs> there are, I mean, there are, there are moderate things that you can do to inflict pain on yourself. And that's good. You know, pain helps with this. I'm not kidding. Um, so there are moderate things that you can do that will not harm your health that do inflict pain on you that are good for you. So that, why? Because because temperance involves uh, the, the sense of touch. So, uh, you know, the, but by extension, of course, gluttony involves touch as well. But when you talk about uh, uh, the, the sins of, of cha of, uh, against chastity, obviously you're talking touch there, right? And then the sense of touch is located all around your body. Um, you know, everywhere you have nerves, you have uh, the sense of touch. So it pertains to that. Now, that's not all that temperance pertains to. But when you talk about ch temperance as chastity, it pertains to that. So when you discipline the sense of touch by mortifying it, by inflicting pain, and I mean, like, you know, you can nail on, you can, you can kneel on your fingers. There's a Franciscan priest taught me that um, because in his house, that was part of their discipline. Every night before they went to bed, um, they would they would kneel in their cubicles and say three Hail Marys, kneeling on their fingers. 
Now, depending on the floor that you've got, it can be different. <laughs> uh, you know, if it's a hardwood floor, it's one thing, or a mar, or you know, a terrazzo marble floor versus a uh, you know a nice plush carpet. Uh, it's going to have a different impact. But if you do that for the duration of three Hail Marys, you feel it. You know, it's you're not going to break your fingers. You know, unless you're 800 pounds or something, you're not going to. Um, you know, do permanent damage to your nerves or anything like that. But it's it's a kind of uh, it, it's a kind of bracing thing that makes you feel pain, and you you inure yourself to denying the the bo- the body's desire, a disordered desire for comfort and physical pleasure. So that's that's the reason behind that. When you come to the to the discipline of the mind with study, you. And you you force your mind, and you know you can gently force it. I mean, it doesn't. It's not. It's not supposed to be violent. You apply your mind diligently to study, and therefore cultivate certain disciplines. Now, physiologically, what's going on? As I've only lately learned, you actually literally build new neural pathways in your brain. I did not know that. So now, new stuff is happening in your in your noggin. Yeah, when you undertake different studies to to to, to learn new things, you know, what well, one of the shocking things about pornography uh, is that when when is that aside from the fact that porn gets you sort of do, a dopamine um, high, uh, you also create neural pathways, and the neural pathways that you make under the influence of porn are the things that sort of attach you to it, at least at the physiological level. Obviously, there's way more. We're not just, you know, bodies with brains. We're much more than that. But at the physiological level, there is something going on. It's documented. So there are new neural pathways that 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 take that are made, and they need to be, in a sense, shut off or misdirected. I don't know enough about the physiology to say how they can be retold, but certainly stopping that and going to another uh, study, another thing that's going to affect your brain, but differently, is a way of disciplining it. Now, of course, when you study, there's, you don't get the dopamine inject. You don't get the dopamine, um, you know, high. You don't. That doesn't happen. You know, you're not going to get this rush of adrenaline either when you study. But there's a certain ordered pleasure that comes with study. Once you've learned something and now you're able to use it, and anybody who's actually studied anything seriously will testify to this. If they don't, they're lying. Um, that, that you get this satisfaction and it's not at the level of sense pleasure. It's not at the level of adrenaline. It's not the kind of sense, it's not the kind of pleasure that you get when you watch an action movie, which again is dopamine inducing. It's, uh, it's an ordered sort of quiet pleasure it's a pleasure of the soul. And that's what we're going for in prayer and contemplation. That's what we're going for in study. And by the way, St. Thomas Aquinas, I was just reading it this morning, talks about how chastity of all the virtues is the one that most suits us, prepares us to contemplation. Interesting uh, stuff. I would just add a couple of things to, bro- or to what Brother Andre Marie just said. Uh, gentlemen, one of the things that you can also do and I know that Kennedy Hall in his book, Terror of Demons, uh, kind of advocates this. Uh, workout uh, regimens where you actually physically challenge yourself. That's one way to inflict a little bit of mild pain. There's one yep. that you can do pretty much every day. If you take a shower every day, I do it every day. No matter, <laughs> And it doesn't matter whether the water in the summer 
is when it's cold, it's 65 degrees, maybe 60. And the winter gets down to between 45 and 15. And when I go to the St. Benedict Center, it's 33 degrees. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, I was going to say, you have not had a cold Yes, I have. Shower. You have not had a cold shower until you've had a cold shower here. I've had at the Priory, sir. <laughs> Uh, the last minute and a half, two minutes, or whatever, whatever it, it does. It, I, I don't think the length matters. Uh, the point is to do it regularly and acknowledge that I'm denying this pleasure, this uh, this this uh, luxury of heated water. Because uh, you know, during many ages in the winter, people didn't bathe because they didn't have hot water. We didn't have running hot water. Uh, and denying uh, yourself. These simple, uh, these simple pleasures, or again luxuries, and replacing them with something that's not so luxurious. <laughs> it might even be a little uncomfortable, and depending on how cold it is, it might be painful. Uh, brother's right. Uh, this is all part of. And now, brother, this is one of the things that um, I think it's important that you and I and others that have public voices talk about this because. Even though we do have good priests, and you and I know many of them, let's be honest, there are not a lot of them. And what's coming out of pulpits these days, that's if people are going to church. It's certainly not asceticism like we're talking about here. So I think it's important to remember to point out and to just reiterate that I think what you call the census catholicus. Live your life as a Catholic. And if you're a Protestant denomination, live it as a Christian the best as you can. And take it seriously. And that includes, you know, everything. The way you eat, the way you talk, the way you, uh, uh, the hours you allocate yourself for sleep, uh, the mortifications you're willing to put yourself through, your prayer regimen. And uh, a prayer regimen is important. You know, brother, we could use all of this as a prelude to the life and times of the glorious St. King Louis the Ninth, and an hour wouldn't do it justice. We'd be talking <laughs> well into the noon, uh, into the afternoon today. Um, when I first got my four-volume set, uh, the annotated uh, version of Butler's Lives of the Saints, uh, the first summer that I read the biography or the hagiography from Reverend Alban Butler, and it's, I can't remember how many pages long, but it took a day to read it, of St. King Louis the Ninth. I was like, wow, that guy actually, and I didn't know. He actually did all of that? I mean, what an incredible life. If you want to study a saint and you're thinking about new Christendom and becoming maybe the king of your uh, of your castle, uh, saint, because he was a king. He was also a husband. He was also a father. He was also a very loyal son, right? Um, he was also a citizen and a parishioner in his church. He considered himself as a as a as a citizen, and, and he mingled with with those that uh, that he ruled. Um, uh, he also considered himself a parishioner. Um, and of course, he said that he said, he said that the the, the 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 humble little parish church where he was baptized was m- more important than the. Uh, I guess it was the Reims Reims Cathedral, Reims, as they say, cathedral where he was uh, uh, coronated king. So he he put more he put more stock in his baptism than he did his coordination. <laughs> that's that's Catholic. That's Catholic. You know, if you read uh, for extra credit, get Charles Coulomb's uh, book about uh, Blessed uh, Charles of Austria, because you know Charles spends two chapters on Blessed uh, Charles getting ready for his coronation, 
and uh, the, you know, the things that went into it and the oaths that he uh, that he uh, he had to take. I think there are three. But in any event, we get some things that last today from St. King Louis the Ninth and most Catholics and certainly uh, our Protestant uh, evangelical uh, denominational friends uh, wouldn't know this as if they've ever seen it before. One of them is the genuflection during the saying of the creed. And uh, uh, the Reverend Butler spends a little bit of time on this uh, explaining it. Brother, it's one of the, the things that's just kind of done now. Um, somehow it survived the revolution. It's even in the new mass, still done, the genuflection during the creed. You want to talk a little bit about that, St. King Louis? Sure. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Why don't I tell two? I like to tell these two stories. By the way, I have this story written up on our website, and right now I'm just looking for a nice picture to go with it, so that it can be, so that when I share it on social media, there'll be instead of just a blank box, there'll be an actual nice picture. And I'm trying to find a picture of Saint Louis, uh, the King of France, kneeling. But you know, good luck with that. Um, the only one I can find is on Getty Images, and they'll sue me if they I will use sue it. you. Uh, yeah, no, I'm not into that. Um, so, uh, it, it, the, the story is that, uh, so there's two stories. So one of them involves, uh, and I'll tell the other one first about a Protestant, a Protestant monarch of England, uh, because it's kind of a cool story. Uh, and that concerns the, the story of Handel's Messiah. Now, have you, Mike, have you ever been to a public performance of Saint, of, of Handel's Messiah? I have not. Okay, so one of the things that that you do, and uh, in, uh, in if you go to a concert of Handel's Messiah, is that you, um, when it comes to the part of the Alleluia chorus, you know they always do the Handel's Messiah around Christmas time, which is interesting because it's not just about Christmas; it, it's about everything in our Lord's life, and it and it goes through all of the um, Old Testament prophecies. It's got quite a libretto. It's very impressive. Um, but in fact, I did a course on it once. Uh, and that course, I think, is available on, on store.catholicism.org. But um, the, at the, at the, uh, towards the end, because it's in honor of the resurrection, there's the Alleluia Chorus. And everybody stands for the Alleluia Chorus. Now, I went, the only time I ever went to hear Handel's Messiah in uh, live was in New Orleans. It was the New Orleans Symphony Orchestra and whatever the chorale was. And it was in the Orpheum Theater, which you probably know where that is. I do. Uh, And the Orpheum Theater has very squeaky seats. It's got those seats that like theater seats (laughs) that pop up automatically. When you stand up, they pop up. So it was very funny because right before the, the the Messiah gets performed, everybody stands up and you hear squeak, 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 squeak all over the entire theater. And then there was this sort of um, rumble of laughter that, that, that followed it. Um, but the reason that people do that is because King George II, who was seated, you know, in, during the performance, during the premiere 
in fact, of Handel's Messiah, the London premiere. Uh, it's a little known fact that Handel's Messiah was actually premiered in Ireland, I think Dublin, which I think would blow most people's minds to realize that it was these uncouth Irishmen that heard it first. Actually, they weren't uncouth. They, weren't uncouth. they were in a, a nice uh, theater, but but uh, people who were anti-Irish uh, would think that they're all uncouth. Anyway, that's where it was premiered. But then in the London premiere, King George II is present, and of course he's sitting in you know the king's seat, right? So he's not going to be in the cheap seats. So he was very prominently uh, visible, right? So during the performance of the Messiah, not at the beginning, but in the middle of it, he was so excited that he just stood up, just this this sort of spontaneous standing up and an exuberance. And of course, when the king stands up, everybody stands up, right? So the entire theater at, at, at that point is standing. Uh, so that started the very interesting custom, which has continued to this day, that anytime the Handel's Messiah is performed in public, um, everyone stands up for the Alleluia Chorus. Uh, Did not now, know that. Did yeah, not okay, know so, that. Yeah, well, hey, I'm, I am your, you know, your purveyor <laughs> of trivia. Um so now, uh, it's sort of an interesting little. That, that's I always think that in, that story goes in a pair with Saint Louis. So, during the singing of the creed, Saint Louis was so incredibly moved at the doctrine of the incarnation. You know, at incarnatus est, de spiritus santo, ex Maria Virgine et homo factus est. Uh, that doctrine that's professed in the creed and the singing of the creed or the reciting of the creed in mass, it would have been sung when he did that, did it. Um, and, 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 and he was made flesh, right? Um, at incarnatus as, uh, uh, at incarnatus as ex Maria Virgine, right? Of, of the Virgin Mary at homo factus est, and he was made man. That so moved St. Louis, who was a son of St. Francis. Don't forget, St. Louis was a Franciscan. He was a third order Franciscan. And he was, and St. Francis, remember, is the one that brought the custom of the crash, the Christmas crash. The Franciscans speak of the crib, the cross, and the crown. You know, the, 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 the joys, the crib, the, cro the cross, the sorrows, and the crown. The, the 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 glorious ascension and coronation of our Lord in heaven that that uh, we have this the joys the sorrows and the glories of Jesus that Saint Francis was so incredibly devoted to and he he brought the fourteen stations of the cross he brought the devotion to the Christmas crash all of this was what it was a devotion to the incarnation mm. and Saint Louis was a loyal son of Saint Francis. And he was so moved by the words at Incarnatus Est, De Spiritus Santo, Ex Maria Virgine, that he, sort of like George the Third, George the Second, but in a different way, knelt. And when the king kneels, everybody gonna kneel. <laughs> so a new custom was begun. I mean, this is this is you know you, you, this is organic development of the liturgy. You know, so we have a beautiful holy, uh, pious, devoted Catholic king who sacrificed so much for his people and for his God, uh, who very publicly made this act of, of spontaneous piety and, and public profession of religion during the Holy Mass, and it stuck. 
Um, so, so much so that we still do it today. And as you pointed out, even in the Novus Ordo, I, I guess they do. Still, brother, huh? brother, in yeah. the Father Lassant's missile, in the missile part of the missile, you know, the mass part, where the creed is, you know, where he gives the, the uh, Father Lassant uses those wonderful uh, Benziger brother uh, engravings to, for the illustrations. When it gets to the Nicene Creed, it says in parentheses, all kneel. Yeah. So your missile, what I don't know that at quote in the quote prima version, I don't know if, if Saint Pius V put it in there, but I can tell you the Father Lasson. Oh, oh definitely, Mike. It was this was. An, I mean, keep in mind, Saint Louis was in the 13th century. Right. Quote primum uh, is in the in the latter part of the 16th century. So you, you know, it was already a completely well established custom at that point. So that's an example. Too bad Doctor Korsneski's not here. That's an example of what he calls the the. The, the beautiful, the sacred tradition that organically happens, that people see, moves them, becomes beautiful, and ultimately gets added to the liturgy. Okay, you'll be very happy, Mike. I just found a picture of St. Louis, Saint Louis kneeling, so I'm, I'm happy. Uh, and I don't think those The little things, brother, the little things. The little, it's the little things in life that bring us pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you're listening to Wisdom Wednesday here on the Mike Church Show here on the Crusade Channel. With Brother Andre and Marie, host of the Reconquest Radio Show. A new episodes debut every Wednesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern here on the Crusade Channel. In the previous 290 episodes, you can also find and download and listen to if you're a Founders Past member at crusadechannel.com. For uh, well, just at crusadechannel.com. Did you put it in the uh, in the chat room or? What's that? The picture? The picture of the kneeling. <laughs> oh man, I, I I've got to actually put it up on our website. No, okay, it, it'll, all right. it, you'll see it. You'll see it soon enough. Okay, all right. Good things come to the, those who wait, Mike. Remember. So uh, uh, that's just one of the things uh, about the life of Saint King Louis the Ninth that are still with us here to this day. I will tell you that I was talking to Robert Morgan earlier today about, you know, they have this wonderful revival now. This will be the second annual Saint King Louis the Ninth pilgrimage. Brother, oh, and, nice. And, and this you, is the gentleman who's in St. Louis, right? Yes. Robert Morgan. You would love this church. It's made out of, it's completely made out of stone. And it is a, a St. Augustine church. Uh, and uh, is it St. Augustine of uh, Canterbury? It might be St. Augustine of Canterbury. Um, if you're ever in St. Louis, brother, you and Brother Joseph and uh, Mary are driving through there, whatever, uh, don't go to the Mosaic. Go to the, uh, the that church of St. Augustine because it's all made out of stone. The high altar there is simply stunning, made out of stone. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. The walls, you can see how they hand-textured the stonework on the walls. And here, uh, for me, anyway, is the crown jewel. At the front of the of the church, now it makes a, the uh, uh, church kind of makes a crucifix, basically. So, you know, you have this classic uh, basilica, you know, long, tall, a big roof, uh, very, very tall from the floor. Uh, but when you get towards the, uh, the altar, you have a wing on either side, left and right. Transept, yeah. A transept, right. Uh, well, I didn't see it until uh, until I was almost ready to leave, and something told me, you need to go to the left front of that and go check that out. They have a full-size replica statue of Our Lady of Walsingham there. Oh, neat. Absolutely stunning. I fell to my knees and burst into tears because I couldn't believe it. And I'm going like, okay, I was supposed to be here for this because she is our patroness here. 
of the Crusade Channel. Um, so if you're ever in St. Louis, go to that church. You will not just, I mean, if you, even if you're not Catholic, the art, just the artistry in this thing, and I think it dates to, I want to say 1868 or something like that. Beautiful, be, there's so many beautiful churches. You know, the ICK has the oratory there, which is stunning. You know, you have the one down. Yeah, uh, the, big, that's big old Gothic. That's a huge neo-Gothic structure. It's magnificent. It. On top of a hill. How did they get all that stone on top of that hill? Ponder uh, that. That's German ingenuity, Michael. <laughs> um, so, uh, and then, of course, downtown, you have the stunning mosaics. I think that's in the cathedral, right? Is that the cathedral? Oh, the, the cathedral. Yeah. Oh, oh, man. I love that cathedral. Yes. That cathedral. So, so if you do two of them in a day, you get the glories of Gothic and the, I, I need to alliterate this. I need to find an R. The, the, um, the uh, romance of Romanesque. Okay. You get both of them. You get big, huge, soaring stuff with the Gothic building, which is St. Francis de Sales Oratory. And then you get this sub, just sublime sort of – it's big, but it's intimate the way Romanesque can be intimate and big at the same time. Uh, and, of course, those killer mosaics that you get in the cathedral. Um, yeah, you can see both of those and get – that is an education in architecture to see those two buildings and contrast them in your mind. Okay, I gave you the wrong – it's not St. Augustine, it's St. Luke. It's St. Luke Catholic Church on Dale Avenue in St. Louis. Uh, this is the one I'm talking about. It's made out of stone and has the uh, full-size replica statue of Our Lady of Walsingham. Uh, simply stunning. Let's get back to St. King Louis, the ninth through feast day. Next time in St. Louis, I'm going to go to St. Luke's. I'll make sure of it. Uh, you, you'll, you'll be impressed. And, and you know what? They also have running around there. You'll, you'll be even more impressed. They have friars and cassocks running around with tonsures. <laughs> okay, friars go around in tunics, by the way, or habits. Oh, okay. Uh, okay, they have guys in in in, in dresses. So are they Franciscan? <laughs> I want to say that Robert Morgan told me they were Augustinians. Okay, well, maybe that's why you thought it was St. Augustine's. Yeah, so, um, yeah, it could be Augustinians, in which case they would look like us. Okay. At least. In there, in at least the cut of the habit would look like us. Okay, um, back to St. Uh, King Louis the Ninth. Uh, now, Gary Potter, if you're looking for a shorter bio, but a very detailed one, again, you could go to Catholicism.org and uh, your old uh, your old friend and many, many year contributor to the St. Benedict Center, Gary Potter has an awesome write-up about St. King Louis the Ninth. Uh, what does that date to? Did he rate that for... It, from it, it's not exactly short, but... No, uh, I said it's long, but it's not it's oh, shorter okay. than the Reverend Alabama Butler's. Oh, I see. Uh, well, uh, let's see. It was popped up on the website in 2008, but it, it dates back before that because he wrote it for our magazine back when we were still publishing the magazine. So uh, it's got some chronology in there. It's got a lot of uh, a lot of the stories of St. King Louis. I think one of the more impressive ones, uh, well, there's so many, <clears throat> one of the more impressive uh, public acts of, of, of when he's King Louis the Ninth. Is that, and this is, I don't know if it's in Gary's, but it's in Reverend Alban Butler's, is that he would ask after certain on certain feast days, he would ask, he would tell the 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 guards or his valets or whatever, go out and get the poor and bring them here to my to my table for dinner, for a feast day. 
That's right. And he would sit down and, uh, you know, they would say the blessing all together and he would feed them. And it wasn't it wasn't a fake. Uh, well, let me show the public my uh, my piety. This is a genuine act of charity for a king that took seriously not the physical well-being of his people, brother. And this and this is the other part that you just have to admire. Where how can we get this back today? And then Blessed Carl might have been the last one to have this. The spiritual well-being of his subjects. You know, they take an oath. The Habsburgs, when they were Habsburg kings, you took an oath. You vowed to look after the spiritual well-being of your subject. Brother, this is completely absent in our modern world, in all of our governments. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, uh, Saint Louis was was very um, was very cognizant of that, and and in fact, he brought in he brought in um, the uh, what do you call it? <laughs> he brought in the um, uh, the Inquisition into into parts of France, um, and he had inquisitors, and there was even a there was even a secular version, and I shouldn't say secular because politics were not secular then. There was a temporal version of the um, uh, of the Inquisition um, that uh, that was utilized by the uh, political governments by you know temporal governments in the Middle Ages and they overlapped so much that they would have Dominican friars who were the inquisitors uh, who would actually also work for the states they would work for the the, the political government and um, be inquis sort of temporal inquisitors as well as religious inquisitors. It was very interesting, uh, um, very near juxtaposition of spiritual law and order with temporal law and order, if you will. They were completely interlocking. They weren't, you know, not only did they not have separation of church and state, they didn't even have the notions that we have today of church and state. They recognized a spiritual order and a temporal order, but the spiritual, but the temporal order was the body, and the spiritual order was the soul. In other words, it was one thing, and this is why Dr. Jones, the other Dr. Jones, could write a book called "Before Church and State." Andrew Willard Jones. Yes, he means before church and state, not before as in Koram, like in the face of, but before as in ante, you know, prior to, chronologically. Before our modern notions of church and state, which then allowed the separation of church and state, they had this concept where they didn't even speak of church and state. They spoke of the temporal and the spiritual. The one was the body of Christendom and the other was the soul of Christendom. That it's a completely different way of looking at reality, of looking at um, looking at at uh, political realities and social realities, which transcend political reality. I mean, p politics has to respect the existing social order, and the social order of Christendom was well Christian, and politics had to respect that. And organically, they just did. That's how they developed. And. Today, of course, you know, we've, we've given into this or we all abide by and live by this ridiculous creed. Keep your religion out of my politics. Separation of church and state. Uh, you know, so you mean a phony divide here. <laughs> you want me to practice yeah, and, something and, and, that's not even natural? 
And not only and not only that, Mike, it's it's it, you know, Gary Potter's made this point and I'm utterly convinced of it. I, I think history bears it out. I think current events bear it out. All you have to do is look at headlines. Politics that aren't Christian are doomed to be evil. OK, if you don't allow Jesus Christ in your politics, Satan rules. Effectively, that's yes. what you do. And, and that's why all of these oligarchs who are very dark, sinister characters, and I'm not saying they're all Satanists, only some of them are, but the, 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 uh, you know, others of them are just getting their pleasures and getting their reward in this life before they, they you know, take a deep dive into Hades afterwards. But the, 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 the reality is that we would not have these wicked men ruling over us if we had Jesus Christ ruling over us. Boom. So we made, we, we made a choice. We made a choice. The choice was, you know, you get you get Jesus Christ, you get Barabbas. We put Barabbas up there, and and Barabbas is easily manipulated by mobs, as he was used by a mob at that time when you know Barabbas was chosen instead of Jesus. So, as uh, this uh, this is Church's maxim number uh, number one, and that is a public entity is either by definition religious or irreligious. And if you choose irreligious, um, and I guess you could, you could, you could kind of, uh, well, what do you mean by irreligious? Satanist or uh, okay, all right. I should say he's either Catholic or anti-Catholic. <laughs> would make it, would would, uh, would put a finer point on it. But uh, I completely agree. And my thinking on uh, on government and um, on law and everything has as as. Uh, I don't want to use the word evolved, but in this instance, it's actually correct. Well, let's say grown, uh, grown and changed as a result of it. Um, and I think it's it's much more, I have more clarity because I'm dealing now with some universals and certitudes. And I can go like, well, no, that has to actually be the law. Um, and I can't write an exception in, in, into the law. And if I, uh, uh, you can make an exception, but, you know, it's, like, it's kind of like the laws of, of, of nature, uh, they have exceptions. Some are miracles or miraculous. Um, but <clears throat> back to the subject of Saint King Louis the Ninth the time and the era in which he lived, and the one in which uh, in which we occupy. Uh, and 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 Brother Andre is uh, is precisely correct. Even if you have a prayer before you begin your little meeting, if what you legislate or what you determine to do. If it contravenes natural law, and heaven for finish should contravene known, stated supernatural law, you're you're on the wrong side of it. You can't ever recover. So nothing good is going to become of it. Um, and there's another part to that, brother. And I heard you say this uh, when I listened to the tape of our, our last uh, last Wisdom Wednesday. And I think it's something that we could, you could probably do a whole episode of Reconquest on. Um, and that's this. Or maybe, or maybe you wrote it to someone in the chat room. Once you cooperate with evil or with error, and, you, and, and, and you, using your free will, you actually cooperate with it, and you, and you start to use it, and then you start to use the implements of that evil and that corruption. The only thing that can come out of it is error and corruption. You can't get back to the truth. You know, 
We expect these politicians, the political class, even the religious class, to all of a sudden come back to the truth. They can't. It's, it's, as our friend Mark Kreisler used to say, what they're doing, evil is baked into it. They can't come this way. It's baked into it. So uh, unless they just renounce and go like, okay, we're scrubbing that because that was just wrong and evil and bad and we can't do it anymore and we confess that it was terrible and we apologize. So let's try this. Uh, we're going to completely change course, which is not going to happen. They can't come our way. It, and it's folly to even, it, it's folly to expect that they will. Absolutely. So why do we then? These, these aren't people who are just sort of uh, accidentally wrong. You know, this isn't, uh, this isn't a, you know, oops, you know, I could have had a V8 kind of thing. This is much more than that. <laughs> oops, I could have, you know, I haven't heard that commercial in a long time. That's great. Oops, could have had a V8. But it, it's, it's folly, folks. It's folly, which is why we're going to get them next election. Get them to do what? If you don't change, if you don't change the the, the order of things, uh, and 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 put them back under the proper authority, it won't matter. It's not going to matter. And I think that's where we can look at the life and times, uh, and that's why Mr. Willard Jones, I guess, wrote that book, and that was uh, it, it. It's called Before Church and State, right? That's right. Um, lessons to be learned here. Now, let me give you another lesson about St. King Louis uh, as he was just King Louis. He didn't sit back in his throne room and go like, go raise me an army and go fight the crusade. Oh, and go tax those peasants over there and take their money from them because I'm going to need a way to pay for it. Now, it is true that he did have to find a way to finance it. That's in Reverend Alban Butler's book, uh, his hagiography. Uh, hey but, brother... He didn't just say, okay, I'm going, let, let's let's join the crusade, or France will join the crusade, or whatever. He led it. And you know, and if you're reading reading Sir Charles's book on Blessed Carl, you know, during the the the, the stretches of, of of Carl's life where he was emperor and uh, he was in uh, at the head of those armies, he didn't just command those guys. He actually went with them. This is what good holy kings do which you know we seem to think that presidents barking orders out from a you know three thousand miles away is some kind of act of nobility i would say that what saint king louis the ninth did is an act of utter and true truly something truly noble right yeah oh, absolutely brother where does the word the term noble come from do, do, you, do you know the etymology of noble um well i mean the the of course, the the noble, um, well, the the noble class, the nobility were a class of people. Um, I'm not sure. Are you looking for noble as in the the word that we use to act nobly or something, or going back to the concept of the nobility, the as in the aristocracy? Well, I'm just in, in, when we say though that was a noble deed. Uh, <clears throat> I'm, it, it doesn't so, matter. So it means illustrious, distinguished, uh, or of high rank or birth from the old French noble, okay. N-O-B-L-E, meaning of noble bearing or birth, from the Latin nobilis, which means well-known. Okay, so it goes back to the proto-Indo-European root gno, G-N-O, which, by the way, really, I think ultimately, yeah. So that's, we get Greek gnosis, right, gnosis. 
Um, the GNO is the PIE that is Proto-Indo-European root, uh, which it gives us the generic concept of to know. Huh? So if you're well-known, we talk about a celebrity. Well, what does that mean? Somebody who's celebrated, right? So it's the same kind of concept. Somebody who is known because of his high birth, uh, etc., uh, is was noble. So the, the 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 meaning got attached to a certain class. Now the French, of course, say noblesse oblige, meaning right. nobility obliges, which means that if you are nobly born, um, you have to act with nobility. Okay. So there's the nobility of fact. And there's the nobility of soul, which would be the kind of qualities that one ought to have if he's a nobleman. That's where I was. No, no. Uh, how do you say it again in French? No, no. Noblesse oblige. Noblesse oblige. That's where I was going with it. Uh, for example, give me something that regime leader. So by, by the way, I, I got I got that from got that from Ed, Edim Online, which is my etymological go to place. OK, good. Good. A good resource. Uh, give me something noblesse uh, oblige uh, that regime leader Biden has done. Well, okay, you know, end of discussion. I cream with his fingers. I'll give him that. Uh, but I would say that if you're if you're looking for something maybe uh, noble that his predecessor, President Trump, might have done, um, I would say walking from the White House to go speak at the March for Life rally. And declaring and pronouncing that as far as he was concerned, life begins at conception. Now, that to me, you can say what you want about Trump. Yeah, he was three times divorced and he said, okay, fine. That was a good thing to do. Yeah. I would not hold up Donald Trump as a model of, of nobility. I'm not holding him up. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just going on record saying that. That's all. I'm not contradicting you. Okay. Let's get to the latter life of St. King Louis the Ninth, And as he nobly leads the army in the Crusades, the last two. Uh, he actually dies, I believe, in, in Tunisia, what we call Tunisia today, right? Yes, yes. He had a bad night in Tunisia, yes. He, 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 he died in North Africa on his way to the Crusades because he, he and his men, um, there, a plague went through. And it was not the first time he was exposed to plague while on crusade. Um, the, the first time his men, his men got sick in the plague while they were in the Holy Land uh, and he was captured. He was remember, he was he was a, he was a, a, um, a prisoner of the more of the not the Moors, but of the Muslims. Muslims. And and uh, I mean, Moors are Muslims, but not all Muslims are Moors. So he was a prisoner of the of the Muslims. And um, there was a, some sort of a treaty signed and part of the part of the uh, conditions of the treaty were that he'd be released. So, but, but he had preached to them. I mean, he was, he was, he, and, and he won their respect. You know, they, they were impressed by the nobility. There's that word again, ding, ding, ding of this man. And they thought that, you know, there's something to these Christians, you know, they, they, there was a, the evangelical power of sanctity uh, is something that cannot be discounted in human history. And St. Louis is one of those uh, who, who radiate, you know, there's an expression in Latin, uh, bonum est diffusivum sui, goodness is diffusive of itself. So, to, you know, think on a, on a nice cold day, not like today, but think of a cold day. Uh, it's nice when you go up to a, a nice warm fire and that, that, 
that heat radiates out. It makes you feel good, right? That's the way goodness is. Goodness radiates itself out from the source of good to what is outside of that source of goodness. That's what the same. That's what Jesus Christ is first and foremost, huh? Right. Um, and and um, and as man, of course, the Trinity uh, first. But but as man, Jesus Christ is that is that all good. Uh, man that comes into uh, on this earth and radiates goodness and all and our lady is that you know to to you know mutantis mutandis as they say and the saints too to to their own degree you know making making proper adjustments uh they radiate goodness and all of us have the capacity if we'll only cooperate with grace to radiate goodness saint louis did it in a big way even while he was captive you know under very unpleasant circumstances but yeah he dies in tunisia um having caught this horrible plague that 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 killed a lot of his men and he was praying uh one of the one of the psalm verses when when he um when he died, which is which is quite beautiful, I, I I envision it being almost like if you've ever seen Gods and Generals. There's a really cool scene. Of course, I have. Thomas Stonewall Jackson is dying, and he and he's and he's uh you know he's he's what's the word? He's he's in and out. You know he's he's not lucid. He's 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 um, he's in this sort of he's got this fever. And um, he doesn't really know what's going on, and it, it's as if he's on the battlefield and he's giving orders. And and he says, "Let's go to the other side. Let's go to the <laughs> other side." And that he dies saying that, and it's got this kind of, you know, Protestant evangelical sort of eschatology attached to that. You know, let's go to the other side. Um, it was a moving, ex- extremely moving scene. I love that film. Well, Saint Louis uh, died not saying let's go to the other side, but it was uh, it was a psalm verse uh, which is not in my head at the moment, but um, uh, it, it, it will get there when I when I when I do my fact check. But um, yeah, he 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 was saying I think it was to this effect of um, let let us go. Um, uh, let us go into the sanctuary of God or something like that. It's, it's, it's a Psalm verse that was in his mind because he, by the way, used to pray the divine office. So um, in fact, um, one of the things that his biographer who knew him, uh, his first biographer knew him, uh, Joinville, Joinville, the, Fre- the, the Frenchman, go figure, who was his bio- first biographer, uh, wrote of him that he was, he was more upset when he lost his breviary than he was when some great catastrophe had happened to him. He had, he had a breviary that he carried with him and he lost it somehow, you know, on crusade, go figure, you could lose something while you're on crusade. And he was very upset by that fact. And it, you know, to, to him, this was uh, a great catastrophe. So it, it just goes to show you what, uh, you know, how differently these men are. You know, maybe it was Psalm uh, 25 or Psalm 69 Deus in agitorium, meo mentende, domine adjuvanda, mea festina. According to Father Michael Mary, uh, many saints died saying that one, but maybe not for St. King Louis. Brother, we're going to run out of time. I want to move on. There's a famous letter that St. King Louis uh, wrote to his son, although the place, oh, yes. where, uh, the place where I got the letter from, they go like, no one knows whether or not he actually was the author, and his authorship has come to be in question today. I'm like, I never heard that before. Have you heard that? No, I think that's uh, fertilizer. I think Brian K can do a lot with that. Okay, that's just absolute trash then. Um, but uh, uh, the letter, uh, Roy et Confessor 
to his son. King, th- king and confessor. King and confessor uh, to his son. Roi. Oh. Is, Roi is, is king in French. Okay. Uh, uh, so that's what's on uh, my, my Vendée patch. Okay. It says yeah, it's Roi. It's not Roy. It's Roi. Okay. Why? It says Roi. Wa Sacre Corps, I think. Uh, that's why it has the Sacred Heart with the crucifix on top of it. Uh, <clears throat> we have him in the back from uh, Dan. Uh, oh, uh, Daniel Rabadon from the uh, Hidden Rebellion movie. In any event, he wrote this magnificent letter uh, to his son advising him to do all these things. And one of the things that he advised him to do was, now, this may not be possible <laughs> for some of you, and you'll understand why, but he would rather him die than commit one mortal sin. Uh, well, no, that was what Blanche of Castile, who was his mother, uh, said of him. Oh, that's what his mother said that, to him. That's what she said to Louis. I'd rather see you dead at my feet than guilty of one mortal sin. And uh, we can hope that he, I guess he took it literally, seriously. Um, but in the letter, uh, it's seven pages long if you print it out. It's difficult to pick just one of the pieces of advice that he gave his son. There are so many. Uh, do you have one that's uh, in particular? Well, I mean, he tells him, you know, to show reverence to, to the clergy and to, and to all in the ecclesiastical state. Um, and he also tells him to t- take great uh, powers to extirpate heresy from your realms. That was one of his most clear directives, that, you know, heresy is, is such a corrosive, horrible, destructive thing that you need to take great pains to make sure that it's stamped out of your realms. This is how the Reverend uh, Alban Butler uh, puts it. Finding his distemper increase, he called for his eldest son, Philip, and gave him certain pious instructions, which he had drawn up in writing before he left Paris. Two copies hereof are still kept in the chamber of accounts at Paris under this title. Instructions of King Louis the Saint to Philip, his eldest son. The dying admonitions of this great king to him are here inserted in abstract. And then he wrote, My son, before all things, I recommend to you that you love God. Be always ready to suffer all manner of torments than to commit any mortal sin. So I knew he gave us some kind of admonition. When sickness or any other affliction befalls you, Return thanks to God for it and bear it courageously, being persuaded that you deserve to suffer much more for having served God ill and that such tribulations will be your gain. In prosperity, give thanks to God with humility and fear lest by pride you abuse God's benefit and so offend him by those very means by which you ought particularly to improve yourself in his service. Confess your sins frequently and choose a wise and pious ghostly father who will teach you what to follow. I.e. spiritual. Spiritual spiritual. father. To follow and what to shun. Let him be one who will boldly reprehend you and make you understand the grievousness of your faults. Hear the divine office devoutly. Meditate affectionately what you ask of God with your mouth. Do this with more than ordinary um, do this with, uh, text is very small here. 
Uh, do this with more than uh, ordinary. I completely lost my place. Confess your sins frequently and choose a wise and pious ghostly father. Hear the divine office of godly. Meditate affectionately what you ask God with your mouth. Do this more than ordinary ordinary application during the holy sacrifice of the mass, especially after the consecration. Be bountiful, compassionate, and courteous to the poor, and relieve and favor them as much as you can. It goes on for another four pages. Um, that's quite a letter of advice. I wish my dad would have given me one of those. Yeah, well, it's beautiful. I mean, it's uh, that's that's what saints do. It is what saints do. And uh, brother, let's 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 close on the feast day of Saint King Louis the Ninth by acknowledging, uh, and we should acknowledge this publicly. Uh, why do we crusade for, for the, the new Christian for the glory of God for the new Christian glory of God? Yes. By the way, his dying words, speaking of the glory of God, were, I will enter thy house, I will worship in thy holy temple, and sing praises to thy name. There you go. So, as long as we have our intentions, uh, purposes properly aligned, then you're on the winning side. You're on the, uh, it may not seem you win on this world, uh, but as uh, the life of St. King Louis the Ninth should serve to instruct us be a saint lead your people if you're a dad that's your kingdom do what i've been instructing you to do and begging you to do what brother andre and brother francis and father feeney before him have been instructing people to do be a godly saintly man and you know what you might even attract a godly saintly woman to help you uh do these things they matter um, and strive to be, try and become a saint. You know, people don't, uh, I don't think, perceive perceive of the communion of saints doesn't just include the ones that we have by name. The communion of saints might include a relative of yours. Uh, if they went to, uh, to judgment in a state of grace um, and didn't have to suffer the fires of purgatory, maybe they did in their, and, and they, they've done their purgation, they're in the communion of saints. Well, to be to be uh, to be uh, to allow for the full expansion of the doctrine of the communion of saints, we are in the communion of saints if we're on earth in the church in the state of grace. We're part of the because because remember the ninth article of the, of the creed says, "I believe in the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints." That's an apposition grammatically. In other words, that saying. The Catholic Church is the communion of saints. So we have the church militant, the church suffering in purgatory, and the church triumphant. Of course, church militant is on earth, church triumphant in heaven, um, church suffering in purgatory. But they're all it's all the communion of saints. Okay. So we are in communion with the saints in heaven as well as the poor souls in purgatory if we're on earth in the state of grace. So let's remember that then. And then, and, yeah. and the way he died, the Reverend Alban uh, Butler says, uh, on the 24th of August, which was Sunday, he received his first extreme unction, according to the discipline of that age, and afterwards the viaticum. It was his custom, whilst in health, and as long as he was able in his sickness, to creep on his knees from his place in the church up to the altar when he went to communion. But can you imagine seeing that? Don't your king is on his knees? <laughs> he makes his way to the communion rail without ever standing up uh, on his knees. <clears throat> you know, Todd McClure can tell you all about that, brother. 
He, he's made the uh, the pilgrimage up the statue, uh, that uh, replica of the crucifix of our Lord on that hill in Michigan that has, I think it's 15 steps. And uh, it's a very pious devotion if you're supposed to try and do it on your knees. There's a place in Rome where there's one of those too, isn't there? Uh, where pilgrims go on their knees? Well, yeah. Well, there's at least one. The the yeah, it's the Sancta Scala, the holy the holy stairs. So these are so the tradition is that these stairs are actually taken from uh, what would have been the Fortress Antonia, where our Lord stood when Pilate sat on the Lithostratos, you know, the judgment seat, and pronounced judgment on our Lord. Those stairs were brought to Rome, and um, I was, uh, yeah, you you go in there, and the pilgrims uh, um, ascend those stairs on their knees. Now the stairs. Are uh, on so there's a there's a there are stairs on top of the stairs, because the actual stairs that our Lord was on are old and frail, and so they put um, this this modern like you know 500 year modern um, uh, set of stairs over it, but they've got glass things in it where you can see into the actual stairs that our Lord was on. Oh. And the pilgrims ascend those things on their knees. I, I got to do it uh, a couple times, I think. Um, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, it really is beautiful. Um, yeah. And the, the, the Oratory of St. Joseph of Montreal, there's a, there's, there's a set of stairs up there that the pilgrims uh, will ascend on their knees. Wow. Uh, continuing with the Reverend Alban Butler and the end of St. King Louis the Ninth's life here on the Mike Church Show with Brother Andre Marie. He was then too weak to do this, to, to, to go to communion on his knees, but uh, he would needs get up and he received the Blessed Sacrament kneeling by his bedside. He again that day called for the Greek ambassadors and renewed in the most pathetic manner his exhortation to union with the Roman Church. He continued the rest of his time in ardent prayer, especially in acts of the divine love and praise. He lost his speech the next day from 9 till 12 o'clock, uh, then recovering it again and lifting up his eyes toward heaven. He repeated about aloud those words of the psalmist, Lord, I will enter into thine house and will adore in thy holy temple, and I will give glory to thy name. He spoke again at three in the afternoon, but only said, Into thy hands I commend my soul. Immediately after which he breathed his last in his camp on the 25th of August, in the year of Christ, 1270, being 55 years and four months old and having reigned, this is interesting, 43 years and nine months and 18 days. Brother, that's another thing. He he was made king when he was 12. Yeah, yeah, of course, his mother was uh, regent right. uh, for him for a time. Now, now, just finally here, so regent means... She was like, like his guy. Somebody who, somebody who rules in the place of the, of the, um, you know, when the, when the monarch is not of age to rule, a regent rules uh, for that person in his stead. So you said his and his mother is is Blanche of Castile. Yes. Is she is she venerable or anything? I thought she was. Um, I'm not sure. I don't think so. She's the she's the sister. Of the mother of um, Fernando Tercero, Saint Saint Ferdinand the Third of Spain, who's you know also a saint. So they're cousins. So so I like as I like to tell people, Saint Louis was half Spanish. Thank you. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, and if you ever, if you want to see some... Uh, Half Castilian, to be specific. Half Castilian. Uh, to go to the cathedral named for him and uh, the city of New Orleans, New Orleans, of course, the patron or the maid of Orleans is Saint Jean de Arc. Um, if you go, if you ever go to New Orleans, the tourist trap is to go to Jackson Square and take a picture of the Cathedral of Saint Louis. All right, fine, go in it. Actually, go in it. It's magnificent, stunning. So when you walk in, I know you've been in there. When you walk in the doors, those of you that never get, if you get, if you get a chance to go, as soon as you come from the narthex into the sanctuary, look to your right. And there is a statue of Saint Jean d'Arc. Look to your left, and there is a beautiful, beautiful statue of Saint King Louis the Ninth. Um, <clears throat> so just a beautiful, beautiful church, a high altar there, and uh, um, uh, Saint Louis Cathedral. Um, and of course, that's where the that's the bishop's church here, or the archbishop here in the archdiocese of New Orleans. Uh, it's stunning. No, uh, brother, this city also is home to. Um, now, the Cabildo burned down in the late 80s. I don't know how much they were actually able to preserve, but it's one of the greatest museums, in all, it was, uh, of, of beautiful Catholic and other art uh, of, the of the entire continent of North America, right there next to St. Louis Cathedral. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, 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 that's, a, that's a neat place of the, uh, what's that street? There's a street there that's named after a Franciscan priest who was, it's Pear Something Road or something right behind the cathedral. And he was an, a, a very colorful New Orleans character. Well, the backside the, of, of St. Louis Cathedral is royal. Um, okay, that maybe it's like a side street right next to it. But yeah, yeah. There's a the, there's a street on either side. They're and they're small, and they're and there's no vehicular traffic. So a horse wagon could have gone down it, but you can't get a car down it. Yeah, it's it, there's a lot of history just in that little the Cabildo and all that stuff that surrounds um, the cathedral. There's a lot of history in that area. That was where the Spanish governed it. When they when it was Spanish was in the Cabildo that was the Spanish capital I think absolutely so a uh, blessed uh, to all of you I, I I'll put the link in the chat room to the Reverend Alban Butler's uh, biography hagiography depending on whose side you're on of well hagiography means biography of a saint right yeah hagios hagios is the Greek word for holy and it's the Greek word for saint okay. so same thing like so it's the Exact Greek equivalent of Sanctus. So, uh, so hagiography or hagiography means the the writing the stories of saints, writing the histories of saints. Uh, no one was better at it than the Reverend Alban Butler. And uh, if you want to, uh, did Bursak finish doing all twelve volumes? I know he did one. Um. I, I believe they're still slowly trudging through it. I don't know where where they where they are now in that project. It's amazing because if you actually get the real un, uh, the unabridged, unedited version, uh, there are saints in the uh, in the Reverend Alban Butlers that don't appear on any calendar made. Yeah, it's a, yeah. He really he did a deep dive. He it, did a he did a really deep dive. Uh, all right, brother. I need that commercial so we can start running it here to get people to go sign up for the St. Benedict Center Conference. Oh, okay. That's right. I will put it on my to-do list um, until it gets to done. But it's coming up, and the easiest way to go sign up is 
store.catholicism.org. Yeah, and you can go, you or you could if you don't want to type store into your browser, just go to catholicism.org and look at that cool carousel um, ad at the top. The first thing you'll that'll smack you in the face on our website is going to be uh, an ad for the conference. Just click on that, and I'll take you right to it. And, and Ron says there are eight volumes of uh, that. Doug's finished eight volumes. Okay, yeah. Okay. By the way, the uh, the conference speakers lineup is is now um, hemi demi semi complete. So uh, we're still waiting on uh, your your and my mutual friend there, uh, Mister Question Mark, who hasn't gotten back to me. Well, he but, called yesterday and dropped the uh, uh, dropped the news, so it's not a secret anymore. Oh, <laughs> D- David Simpson called. He, he called in yesterday and uh, asked for a ride. Oh. <laughs> so you found out before I did. I guess I'm always the last to know. <laughs> well, he's still he, he's got to take care of the hybrid. He's the a hybrid. he's a headmaster now too. Did you know that? Oh, you mean the hybrid ho- homeschool thing? Yes, sir. Yes, oh, sir. Okay. All right. Well, you know, I mean, hey, he's no brother uh, Andre, but you know, he's a. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I, I have great respect for Mr. Simpson, and I, and I, I, w- I wouldn't compare myself to him uh, except to say how much I admire the man. Um, so, we, we uh, so then Charles Coulomb is lined up too, but I'm afraid he's going to be uh, beamed in digitally um, because, of course, I'm fully convinced that Austria is going to be under you know Nazi-style lockdown come fall. Well, they practically are. They have been. Yeah. Yeah. It's tragic what's going on. By, by the way, you know, you and I were talking about, uh, tell people what the theme of the conference is. Now, listen, this is the theme of the conference. This is why you need to make your plan right now to go October 8th and 9th, St. Benedict Center. Beautiful time of year to be in Richmond, New Hampshire, anywhere in New England where the foliage is out. What's the, the foliage? Theme? Yeah, the foliage. What's the it's, theme? Uh, re- well, okay. So the short thing, the short title is "Resisting the Revolutionary Reset." Now, the longer one is that plus a sort of subtitle, which is uh, "The Virtues, Skills, and Catholic Good Sense." No, it's called "Virtues, Skills, and Catholic Good Sense for Flourishing Amid the Madness." And let me tell you, we got madness, and it's coming hard, and it's coming loud, and. Um, you know, Mike, this whole man, uh, vax mandate thing, I realize you probably think you talk about this too much, but um, it's its hurting people around us. And by the way, I'll tell you an anecdote that I want to put this up on our website. I'm going to tell this school dad. He's got to write this thing up for me. There's a school dad in our school. I knew him when he was a kid, but now his children come to our school. And he was telling um, telling us the other day, he said, you know, there was a guy who was a buddy of mine at work, and he said, you know, you getting a jab? And Patrick said to him, no, I'm not getting a jab. And he says, um, yeah, well, you know, and Patrick, I guess, told him why. And he says, well, you know, I guess I'll find out. You know, if if I die, I guess I'll, I'll know that it didn't work. If I, if I live, I guess I'll know that it worked. Patrick went to this guy's funeral the other day. Oh, he, he got, and he got the jab. He got the jab, and he died. And like ahead of time saying like in jest, well, I guess if I die, I guess that means you're right. Something to that effect. And now the guy's dead. I mean, it's going to come to a point where everybody's going to know somebody that died from this stupid thing. And are we really going to accept that? You know, that this is, you know, John Sharp has given us his talk title. Mike, you will love this. 
You ready? I'm ready. I'll still take my stand. The case for ideological intransigence as the response to the moral decay, the moral death of modern society. I'll still take my stand. So you know what that is. You know from that I'll is. take my stand, the 12 That's, Southern agrarian authors. Yes, which of course harkens back to Dan Emmett's words to, you know, Dixie. Um, I'll take my stand in Dixieland. So, um, Well, brother, I'm of the know, opinion these days that uh, the, what we had of a republic, uh, it ended at Appomattox. <laughs> and the damn Yankees took over. No, and the, 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 the damn Yankee Protestants took over. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I don't know if you get a Latin Mass magazine, but there's a lady. She died, actually, last year, but she wrote three-part essay about my ancestors. I don't know if they're yours, but they're mine. The Acadians. This isn't Diane Mozart, is it? Is it? I don't have it here in front of me. She's a historian who wrote for Latin Mass Magazine. She's really good. Did she die? Um, did she recently die? I, I I don't know. If she did, I'll pray for her soul, but I don't know. Okay, three-part series on the Acadians, uh, my ancestors, and many people listening right now, your ancestors. Um, Not mine. That's what I said. I didn't know if they were yours. The, the, the treachery... That was uh, that was schemed and then used on the Acadians. It is very similar to what they're doing to us today, and that was the Protestant, the English, uh, the Protestants in Massachusetts, primarily goaded on by certain uh, actors in Parliament. Um, now, King George II was not necessarily prodding this along. But he also wasn't doing a very good job of, of abiding by the treaty that his father uh, had, had signed with the Acadians and with the French. Um, brother, they, they, they basically schemed to genocide him out of existence. They were so jealous of their success. And the Micmac Indians, or two, two bands of Indians, the Micmac Indians, my, my great, 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 go back, great times 11, grandmother is a Micmac Indian. A lot of you Acadians, uh, if I'm talking to you people that live in Acadian or you're from there, uh, you're going to find out if you trace your family trees, if they go back to a French Acadian, to Acadian, Nova Scotia, Front Royal, you might have Micmac Indian in your ancestry. I'm more, here, brother, I can now confidently tell you and announce on the 25th of August, <laughs> 2021, I, I, am more, I am more Indian than Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> I knew that was coming. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, hey, good for you. So they, the, scheme, the, the, they schemed against the Acadians. They were jealous of them because, the, because they didn't try to kill the Indians. What a thing. They tried to convert them. And some of them did convert. And the other ones, they got along with them. They traded. And you know when the when the the Bostonians would uh, would would have a bad crop, they mount an army and a fleet. They sail up the front royal. They'd invade and they'd rob and pillage all that the the French Acadian Catholics had. Who took the Acadians in? The Indians. That's how they survived. Anyway. The and so the Scot so but so the Scottish too. There was Scott there was there was Scottish people up in uh, Nova Scotia who took the um who took in some of the Cajuns and protected them from the Brits. Yeah, it's a wonderful the Acadians, I should it's say. It's it's a wonderful story and then uh you know the first uh, the diaspora um they moved 8,000 of them. Kicked them out. Put them on prison ships. 
The ones that survived, they shipped them over to France to an island north north off the coast of Normandy, still there today. Um, and many of the Acadians were not welcomed back in because, brother, there would have been what we call today tradies. <laughs> yeah. And well, and, and there's a there's a there's a, uh, a, a, a a real beauty to that whole story. I mean, of course, it's tragic what the what the British did uh, to to them. But you know, the French t- tended to like the Spanish. The, the French tended to intermarry with the natives, unlike the British. And what what and th- and that's why you had the the voyageurs up in Canada were Frenchmen who would live like Indians. And frequently they would intermarry with the Indians, but they evangelized the Indians. And the Micmacs of whom you you spoke, they were all Catholic. They were in in fact, there's a there's a Jesuit priest, Father Sebastian Rall, who was the evangelist of the Micmacs in New Hampshire, um, Maine, and Vermont. So, you know, northern northern New England states. He uh, he evangelized um, the Micmacs and successfully. So successfully that um, I believe it was the Micmacs who, when the the Republic came came into existence, and suddenly you know uh, the, the the president of the Republic has some jurisdiction over Micmac territory, they wrote a letter to George Washington and they said, uh, "We acknowledge you as our king." They didn't understand this whole Republic thing. We acknowledge you as our king um, in the in the in the temporal order. But our spiritual leader is the Pope of Rome. And Washington wrote back to say, essentially, hey, that's okay. <laughs> so he didn't, in other words, they, they basically told him, we will follow you as our, as our king, but we will, we will not follow you as our spiritual leader. Wow. So they made it really, really clear. Uh, I didn't know that. What's on tonight's Reconquest? Tonight's uh, reconquest is um, it, it's it's another solo show. Um, and by the way, next week I should have a guest, but it, I called it "Now Have I Begun," mm. and um, you know I was tempted to call it "New Beginnings," but that sounds so sentimentally sort of you know stupid that I didn't. Um, and, and you know it's sort of new agey kind of sound sounding now. Although the concept is beautiful. Um, so uh, it's a quote from the Psalms, of course. Nunc chepi is frequently said by the saints. Now, now, now I begin or now I have begun. And it's all about the concept of beginnings in the spiritual life and um, how the concept of beginnings and origins is a very important biblical concept. So um, I talked about that for 55 minutes. Now I have begun. Interesting. Yep, I got the link dropped in the chat room, and I've got a picture of King David and his harp uh, going with it, because, of course, I am quoting a psalm there. Uh, and by the by, uh, thanks to you, I or spurred on by you, I opened an account up with the University of Notre Dame Press uh, that goes under the business name of Longleaf Publications, and huh. uh, I have a case of uh, the four cardinal virtues books on the way. Wow. For now, sale in Ignat- store. If you have an account with Ignatius Press, you can get other paper books too. Well, I have so. this paper book coming from uh and I and and now I have an account with Ignatius Press. Yeah, so Notre Dame, Notre Dame University Press and Ignatius Press, that's the answer to the age-old question, Jeepers Creepers, where'd you get them peepers? <laughs> 
Uh, okay, I see what you did there. <laughs> I, I, I see what you did there. Uh, long live St. King Louis the Ninth, and as I told Robert uh, Robert Morgan, uh, St. Louis forever. Uh, there's a revival going on in devotion to King St. Louis uh, the Ninth in St. Louis. Um, there's good things happening out there everywhere, brother. Uh, as the evil rises and thinks that it's going to run the table and that we're just all going to go and uh, either obey or die or whatever that is the case, uh, more and more people uh, just, uh, maybe it's the Crusade Channel that just tracks them and I keep finding them or they keep finding me. Uh, one of our listeners sent us bars of soap yesterday. When she's not, it's the cheese lady. When she's not making cheese, she makes soaps. Uh, uh, homemade soaps, good natural stuff that you know you make from the excess of your from the cheese making process. I'm gonna have her on, and we're gonna do a show on soap making because this is something else that you don't have to. That you know, if you're gonna make cheese, then you've got the ingredients basically, apparently, to make soap. So, um, and these people, these wonderful people, I just keep they keep finding me <laughs> to do these things. And I'm amazed. Uh, uh, did you also see... Uh, okay, one more thing. Then you can go. Because I know you're busy. And you shouldn't have stayed this long. You should have told me, Mike, I got a real job. <laughs> Mike, I got a real job. I got to go. Uh, Jenny Garner. Now, uh, Brian K. Has, has informed me that he's not doing uh, Free Farm Friday this week because he's got a fishing date or something. Uh, but I'm going to do this story anyway. The rogue food movement is gaining ground. And the story starts with this. It's a quote. Quote, we're going to storm the gates. They just don't know it yet. Close quote. Joel Salatin. Ha! F brother, the, the secret is out. The secret to long life, if you're not a Catholic, convert. <laughs> Say, uh, try to become a saint. And for your bodily nourishment and subsistence, uh, eschew everything modern that you can. <laughs> this is becoming apparent. And then trade with the people who are doing the same thing. Uh, yeah, the, the localism thing is important. And, and we're doing it big time up here. And you, let me tell you, our sister's pigs are becoming <clears throat> famous, you know, sort of like, you know, um, Charlotte's Web. You know, people are saying that's some pig. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we're getting and and I'm you know I was talking to a local Richmond farmer the other day who actually informed me that you can grow tobacco in Richmond because <laughs> well, he does it, and the seeds that he uses are descended from seeds that Thomas Jefferson sent up to one of the founding fathers near Boston when he was on hard times. He said, "Yeah, try growing this stuff up there and see if it grows because it doesn't grow well down here," and he did, and he became a rich man because of the tobacco that he produced. Well, you saw the title from my talk. I did, I did, I did. Okay, so, well, don't tell them what it is, but you can tell them. Uh, local, the local, local, local show. Uh, there's a reason why there's three locals, but, uh, brother, this is a, and I think this is organic and it's natural anyway. I think the other way we've been doing it is not natural. Um, this is starting, there's a lot, we're not alone. Our numbers are growing, theirs are decreasing. So, yeah, well, yeah, and, and, it's, and it's one of those things where, you know, ultimately, you know, <laughs> Okay, so I'll quote Chesty Puller. You know, you know when they said, you know, we're surrounded. Yep. They told Chesty Puller. He says, well, he says they're in front of us, they're behind us, and we're flanked on both sides by an enemy that outnumbers us twenty-nine to one. They can't get away from us now. 
Um, <laughs> we got so them right where we want them. There are multiple <laughs> different versions of this thing. That's that's all attributed to Jesse Puller. One of one of them is that they say to him, "Sir, we're surrounded." He says, "Great." Then that doesn't matter which way we shoot. We're bound to hit him. Um, that, that's obviously the way somebody who's got fortitude looks at these things. Yeah, so they've got us surrounded. So they're more powerful than us. So so all that. So what? Um, we're we're they only have strength over us if we fear them. That's and right. the thing is, they're bullies. What do you do to a bully? You give them a bloody nose. Punch them. Or you point and laugh. Now, I think we should do the equivalent of pointing and laughing, which is to say, essentially, now, I'm not saying we should mock people. That's not my point. My point is, don't take them that seriously. They, you know, Bill Gates is a moron. He thinks he's so smart. He's not that smart. Okay. Well, brother, I say it all the time. They're not smart people. They're that not. goes to most of these guys. Point and laugh and realize that, no, when you fear God, you don't fear these petty little little tin horn dictators and self-important oligarchs, you know, would-be world rulers. So point and laugh in your soul and just say, no, you know, I fear my Lord Jesus Christ before whom I will come in dread judgment one day. I don't fear these these little these little petty little tyrants. You know, they they come and go. They've they've come and gone all through history. Most of their names are completely forgotten. If it weren't if it weren't for the creed, Pilate's name would have been forgotten. True. But you know, so let's just let's just put that in perspective. In 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 the eternal perspective, these people are of very little account. Yeah, they have individual souls, which we hope they end up saving, right? I mean, we don't hate them, but um, but you know, we need to realize that we're just going to keep humming along like things are normal. And yeah, that will require responses. I mean, I I'm not saying this isn't complicated and this isn't harming thing. I mean, I'm writing letters for people that I've never had to write before uh, about, you know, religious exemptions and stuff like that. I even wrote a religious exemption letter for a Protestant last night. And, and cause this guy's being pressured to take the jab. They, his place of business actually scheduled an appointment for him. They said, yeah, you have to come in at six 30. Oh no. You, oh hell no. That's uh-uh. your report. Nope. So I told his friend who came to me, like, you know, I said, Tell him to call immediately and say something came up. I can't make it, and I will write a letter. And but I mean, the, the, the idea, like, who are you? You're my employer. I work for you, and you pay me. You don't take care of my medical problems. That's totally private to me. You know. Anyway, you, you got to stand up to these people. And if you don't stand up to them, if everybody goes along, it's just going to be the the sheep sort of doing this dive off the cliff following people into into you know ultimately hell and we have to see this is a type of 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 the demonic in other words these people who are doing this whether they're doing it willingly or or, or doesn't willfully and volitionally and, and cognizantly of the evil or not they are types of demons who are leading us to hell and say no i'm not going you're not going to get you're not going to get that in fact you'll have to fire me because i'm not quitting and in fact I want you to write a letter saying why you're firing me, because, you know, when the class action lawsuits come up, I'm coming after you. Uh, Brother Andre Maria at the St. Benedict Center. Find Reconquest at CrusadeChannel.com. Sign up for the St. <coughs> Benedict Center Conference, October 8th and 9th at Catholicism.org. Brother, really got to go. God bless you. We'll talk soon. And uh, God bless all the brothers and sisters and your students on the first day at school.
Thank you. Thank you very much, Mike. God bless you and all listeners. All right. Thank you.